Well, if you would turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, that'll be where we are today in our text. And before we go and read that, I want this to be on the forefront of our minds. Why would God allow obedient Christians to remain in times of suffering? Why? Is that his real plan for believers? Isn't that a little contrary to the gospel? Well, we find ourselves here with a dose of divine comfort, and that is the message of this passage today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-11, through 11, we are given a dose of divine comfort. Let us read as we enter into this text. Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from the great peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us you also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many this is the word of the living God please attend to it as such. As I was at the 15th anniversary last week, I noticed a common theme of comfort over these last 15 years that the church has brought to one another. And in looking in that, I realized that this passage has never been taught at Santan Bible Church. In fact, there have been passages that have been taught from 2 Corinthians, but not this one, not a dose of divine comfort. And for you and I to step into this passage as believers that may be in a current present situation of suffering, we need to understand what the dose is for and how we obtain that dose of comfort. And Paul gives that through clear, through three clear lessons of divine comfort, about divine comfort, so that you and I know how to remain in and under Christian affliction. And we see here there's nothing more similar to this than the context of Paul's writing as we see the first point in his greeting, the context of Paul's divine comfort as we'll see in verses 1 through 2. The second point will be divine comfort is only abundant through Christ in verses 3 through 5. And then he continues on in saying in verses 6 through 11 that divine comfort is continued through the prayers of the church. Now, Paul's context often teaches us some about our own context and that's this that there are always attackers within the church. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of today is not much different than the prosperity gospel that he dealt with in that time, and we'll get into that context in a second. But one proponent of that is Crefo Dollar. He's all about the dollar, not about Christ. <laughs> but as I read this quote, don't believe that I believe this, and I hope you don't either. This is what he says about prosperity. Biblical prosperity is the ability to be in control of every circumstance and situation that occurs in your life. No matter what happens, whether financial, social, physical, marital, spiritual, or emotional, this type of prosperity enables you to maintain control in every situation. I think Creflo Dollar forgot to read the book of Job. 
And we understand that Paul, in the midst of this, he's an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Why does he start out the letter that way? And why does that lead into a section about comfort? Well, we know that Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had to defend his position with God. The events of this occur in 1 Corinthians chapter 18 through 20, and we understand that it's been three years since he visited the church of Corinth. He spent a year and a half there. He promised to come back, but the Lord willed that to be at a different time. And in that time, his relationship was strained between the church that was at Corinth. There are people that had come up from Jerusalem that had accused him of not having a status or a position of authority in the church anymore. So he starts off his letter in verse 1 with the context that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is a messenger sent out, not self-designated, but theo-designated. God sent him out to proclaim the gospel. No matter who was going to come in afterwards, they couldn't take away from the God-centered designation in his life. Even though the relationship was strained, it was not restrained between him and the Lord. So he starts out with that authority position. You know, Paul was an easy person to attack. And maybe you are as well. Paul was an easy person to attack because of all the stresses in his life. He was poor. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was in constant disputes over religious leaders. When he went to synagogues, the modern-day church, he wasn't liked. Yet he knew in that distress that comfort from God, the divine source, the dose from divine comfort was where he rested upon. And that's where he asks us to come together as we confront afflictions and maybe the false accusations that stem from the outside within those afflictions as well. Paul was indeed a true apostle of Jesus Christ, commissioned as a messenger by Christ himself. And their message of attacking him was if they were saying this, God, you made a mistake delegating Paul to our church. But not only delegating Paul, delegating Paul's delegates. See, Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, had promised that Timothy would join him. That's why it says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. The intentionality of God was that Paul would be the person who ministered on God's behalf to the church of Corinth. And it says here as well, and Timothy, our brother. The context is here that there is a joint sender with this letter. Some of the other letters write about another person that helped him write the letter, but that's not the language here. Paul uses the language that he is a joint sender. He is with Paul in this writing. He is alongside Paul. And when Timothy was sent there, as a result of 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10 through 11, it reads this. Now if Timothy comes... See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. You know, Timothy got in a little muddy waters doing ministry. Remember, Timothy wasn't an apostle. He was sent by an apostle. He was a third-generation Christian. He was the son of a Jewish woman, the son of a Greek father, and they saw him ministering and didn't necessarily like everything that he had done. But he was alongside Paul in the ministry. And Paul was alongside God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the church of Corinth is the context in which we find Paul's situation here. It says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Literally, would be translated better to the church possessed by God, which is at Corinth. If we're a church possessed by God at Santan Bible Church, then we're going to take the dose of divine comfort that is here within this text for us, no matter our personal prerogatives. We understand that Corinth was an interesting city. A hundred years prior to the writing of this letter, Paul would have been well aware of what had unfolded in the next hundred years. In 46 B.C., Julius Caesar would find the city of Corinth, and he would overtake it as a Roman Empire. And in those hundred years, a mass culture of boasting in oneself to promote oneself was present amidst the culture. 
This is very true that the Roman boasting culture was very influential by the amount of Roman inscriptions that we see today for modern findings. In fact, of all the 104 inscriptions in the entire city of Corinth that are found, 101 of them are in Latin and only three are in Greek. The Romans controlled the culture. And in that culture, there was a social climbing. Many of the people in the context of Corinth were those who were just recently released from military service and those who were freed slaves. So they came into this new city with new opportunity and the system of the Romans, the new opportunity was to self-promote, self-designate. And the boasting was in one's own pride. But how, how could Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, boast as one who was having so many afflictions. We need to not let the circumstances upon a person dictate their relationship to Christ. Instead, Paul saw boasting in suffering as his option. We see that this was indeed the thorn in his flesh from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. It reads this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself like the Romans would have done, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul knew his place in Corinth and the general region, the province that was there, Achaia, and he understood that he was to be a boaster in Christ. That was the context here amidst the culture of a Roman society at Corinth. This letter would stem into many churches, not just the one at Corinth. There were other provinces as well. This was a letter, one of four letters that we call the capital letters of Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, written to cities. And in that time, that was the major hub, the city, but there were churches dispersed throughout. So this was really applicable to many churches in that area. One interesting thing here is that this letter is written in the context of A.D. 55 and 56. That is three to four years prior to when he would be in his first prison sentence in Rome in 60 to 62 A.D. So we see Paul is dealing with much affliction outside of even the prison sentence he would be given. What kind of suffering, you may ask. He described it in our scripture reading. And he wanted them to know in chapter 6 that it was in any kind of way you could possibly imagine. We don't have time to go back into it again. But he knew that for the church of Corinth to come out of all situations of suffering and affliction, the answer was not to be in self-affections, verse 12. You are not restrained by us, he says, but by your, you are restrained by your own affections. See, the church of Corinth didn't collectively, cohesively have a religious affection in the midst of their suffering. And I would ask the same question of Santan Bible Church. Are we religious in our affections as a unit of Christ in the city of Gilbert? Read this as if it's to the church at Gilbert who is dealing with afflictions. Because we need to understand to come out of suffering, we need to come into boasting in Christ. The context is set, and now in verses 3 through 5, we are learning that divine comfort is only abundant through Christ. Uh, before I get there real quick, he summarizes the theme of the gospel in verse 2 to set the context for which he goes into this abundant divine comfort for Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, a common greeting. But to Paul, grace developed the idea of favor and benefit that we receive freely from God. It's given what we don't deserve. We deserve judgment. And peace is the result that flows outside of that grace where the cross now becomes a relationship. We can think of peace in three ways in the Bible. Here, and also Romans 1-7, it talks about the peace from God. We can think of it secondly, in Romans 5-1, the peace with God. And thirdly, we can think of it in Philippians 4-7, the peace of God. But there is peace in God for Christians. This teaches us also that there is no peace outside of divine comfort. We seek it all over, but there's no answer outside of the passage that we have here today. So we move on 
to this beautiful teaching that Paul develops to teach us in verses 3 through 5, divine comfort is abundant only through Jesus Christ. A few general observations as I cover this next two sections. We see that Paul's use of combining the idea of affliction and sufferings is eight times to convey the abundance that he was feeling in his situation and circumstances within and without. But in the same verses, he uses the idea of comfort both in the noun and verbal form ten times to convey divine comfort. This tells us clearly in our treatise and dose of divine comfort today that divine comfort outweighs the very afflictions he allowed in the first place. Are you allowing each affliction to be accompanied by divine comfort? If we were to take more of a cluster analysis of this usage of comfort in the New Testament, we would find that this is the greatest dose of comfort in the entire Bible. Just a quick look at the noun form of the word comfort teaches us that it occurs 29 times in the New Testament. 20 of those are by Paul's, and 11 of those 20 in the book of 2 Corinthians. And look at this, 5 out of the 11 are right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, what about the Septuagint? The Old Testament use of this noun in the Greek, the Greek uh, use in the Old Testament used 11 times, but none of those 11 times are in such a great cluster as it is here. Most of those occurring in Isaiah and Jeremiah. What about the verbal form of the word comfort? It's used 109 times in the Bible. 25 in the Synoptic Gospels. Paul uses it 44 times alone. He uses it 18 times in his epistles, but 18 times in 2 Corinthians. And the largest cluster is found here in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 1, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Same, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 85 uses, 11 in the Psalms, 6 in Job, 28 in Isaiah. But none are as concentrated as here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So we see, needless to say, that this is the greatest concentration, the greatest dose and theology of comfort in the entire Bible. And it's going to draw you to the conclusion that it is only abundant through Christ, no matter how many other places you seek it. We see that there's so many results of comfort as a result of divine comfort in the so so that's that are used here over four times in this passage. And so he continues to share with us from the context to the abundant comfort in Christ in verse 3. He starts out and erupts in this prayer of similar Old Testament language, blessed be the God and Father. Well, he starts out there with that theme of Old Testament praise, that idea in Psalms that you would start out a psalm, blessed be the God. There's two themes in the book of Psalms with blessed, the idea of Asher, Psalm 1, that God looks upon you with blessing, divine enviable state of favor that he bestows upon you through obedience in Christ. But then there's that idea that's conveyed here, that Baruch, that blessing that you commend or praise God as a result of him being worthy to praise. The work we get here for uh, blessed in the New Testament actually is very similar to the word we derive a eulogy from in a funeral. A good word to bestow upon God the Father who is worthy to be praised. It's exactly the way it's used in kind of a mockery sense from the high priest in Mark 14, 61. It says this, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Messiah, the son of the one who should be praised? That word praised, the blessed one. The same word we find here. The high priest would associate this with that Old Testament idea. But Paul draws upon the New Testament correlation that it's tied to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, that personal relationship that we have with God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul throws it in the face of those who were to say that he was not here to do the Old Testament, God's work in the New Testament on the cross. He confronts those who would offend him about his apostleship with the very nature of Christ, and he continues on with this idea of Father. 
He says so much here, God and Father, and Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort. It encapsulates all that's in the nature of Christ, beginning with God, the uncreated essence and deity of God. And the Father, his oneness with the essence, John 1, 1 through 3. His Lord and supreme ruler over all creation as Kyrios, the Lord, or Jesus as the Savior, Yeshua, and as the anointed one, Christ. The sense here is that Paul's example to us is that we're indebted to praise and commend the only true God, the supreme ruler and Lord, the anointed Christ who saved our souls, who's the God of all comfort. There's no divine comfort found outside of the gospel and found outside of the collective synergistic work of comfort in the church. As he draws upon the familiar relationship of this in the use of the term father as we get it here. Casey was reminding me today this is the first time I'll preach in front of Benjamin. And I'm familiar of that unique familiar relationship in the household that I would take the Father of mercy that God bestowed upon me upon the cross and take it to the home to my children. And that's the very same nature that Christ, or through Paul, the apostle, draws upon here and ultimately brings out as a result of the idea in Psalm 103, verse 13 through 14. He says this, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Obedience is tied to compassion, to comfort. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We are created beings needed to be comforted by the divine creator. And if we allow that, he is the God of all comfort. It's comprehensive for you and I. Everything that makes up the study of comfort is complete, found in the life and death of Jesus Christ, our God. He continues this idea of comfort and he draws upon the Old Testament that started in the book of Isaiah when we see the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are dedicated to judgments upon them for their disobedience. And then he launches in to the last 27 chapters, Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66, with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He says in Isaiah 49, verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So we see this idea of comfort drawn out in the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, that the high priest was willing to concede to. We see the idea of the comfort drawn in Jesus in the New Testament here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that the high priest wasn't willing to concede to. And we also see that Jesus promised of a comforter to come in John 14, 26. It says this in John 14, 26. And you're going to notice here it says, but the helper. Well, that very same word that's used here in 2 Corinthians 1, parakletes, is used there, but the helper, the comforter, the parakletes. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I had said to you. What we see here is that Paul is taking it far beyond what the Old Testament believers would have conceded to. And in a New Testament understanding the theology of comfort, we understand that it is a Trinitarian prerogative to bring divine comfort in our lives. We have to ask, are we allowing the Trinity to have its prerogative in our affliction through comfort. Let's go into that word for a moment here as we see the very first word of comfort brought up in verse 3. Paracletes, the God of all comfort. It is used in the Bible to convey three concepts, the idea of encouragement, the idea of a strong request or appeal, and we see that happening in certain passages. One passage is that of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work 
and word. So we see that brought up there. And then also in name through Barnabas. Did you know Barnabas' name is translated son of encouragement? Acts 4, 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Now we see the third application really come to life here. Whether it be through the actions that we conform to as a result of the word of God acting in the word of God in our lives or the people that God brings to us, we see that we are to lift one another's spirits in comfort and consolation as it's used here. The divine comfort lifts our spirits. And we understand it is everlasting. It is all comprehensive because it is from a divine God who is all-knowing, who has been existing from beginning to end. So we see that brought up and continued on in verse 4 with comfort's intentionality. It says in verse 4, comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice here just real quick, in verses 3 through 11, there is not one use of first person singular. There are 14 plural pronouns. And this teaches us one very valuable lesson, that comfort is a theology of a collective sharing. That we know the divine comfort that begins in Christ continues in the church through the brethren. It's not to be an isolated event or an isolated suffering. We're to be together in this. And we need to join in that with intentionality letting God's divine comfort lead to its intentional result of comforting one another look again at verse four, uh, four the beginning of it who comforts us in our afflictions notice it says in it is not saying he will deliver you out of all afflictions the prosperity gospel gets this wrong there may be times where the Lord blesses you that but ultimately That's not the point of the theology of comfort. Comfort is to bring us outside of personal situations and inside of the mind of Christ so that we know his intention behind it and not our intention to live in this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 18 says, Set your mind not onto what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you have a heavenly perspective through the present comforting, you'll allow it to have its intentionality in your life. There is a God who intentionally sanctifies you through your affliction. Do you allow that to happen? Do you allow him to be your fort in affliction? If you look at the word in English, comfort combines that idea of fortress. Comfort. We're with a fortress. We see that God doesn't want us to be with a fortress alone, but with a fortress in his people. We see here, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul knew that was true of him to the church of Corinth, and we know that that is true of us who goes through things. We need to be sharers of that. This idea of affliction occurs most in 2 Corinthians in the entire New Testament. Nine times. It's a sense of trouble. It's a sense of being pressed down. It's a sense of somebody rubbing it into your skin. A physical sense is portrayed in the root word, and there is an emotional and spiritual sense as well for you and I. For Paul, it may very well have been outward circumstances, but the Bible here says of all comfort, of any affliction, and that we know the Bible talks a lot about many different sufferings. Chapter 6, he went in to all of them. We know there's distress caused by war, there's affliction caused by circumstances, there's affliction caused by health, by loss, by anguish of the heart, involved direct suffering, involved near suffering that's proximity of persecution, but all of that is brought to the forefront of the comfort that was given from divine comfort and then shared with one another. We need to allow comfort to be a transferable act in the church. 
Look here again by the preposition by God in verse 4. Comforted by God. That's hypo. Hypo means under. If you're hypothyroidic, you have your thyroid levels under. You are under the comfort and control of God. And when we come as sharers of that, we are under the divine intention. When we're outside of the church to share one another's comforts, we are outside of divine intentionality. Are you allowing the comfort of each other to transfer to you in your life as you obediently follow Christ? We are alleviated of our stresses, sorrows, and afflictions because of Christ's comprehensive work and because of the church's transferable comfort. We look at verse 5, and he goes on to a plethora of comfort. It says this, For just as sufferings, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We share in the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. Do you place your sin upon Christ on the cross and bring that to the forefront of your mind? As you come here, the word here, sufferings, comes from that root word, Pascal, the Pascal lamb, the passion of Christ, as what he led in the cross, he did not bail out, and either should you and I. But we need to be continually getting through the plethora of comfort, through the plethora of an abundance in Christ. There's this idea that you may be here, though, and you're experiencing suffering, but it's self-inflicted. Well, this same word of affliction is used for self-inflicted afflictions of sin in Romans 5, 7. But we're not talking about self-afflicted sufferings here. We're talking about sufferings of Christ. The divine comfort comes ultimately from sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that's the illustration that Peter withdrew on or draw upon in 1 Peter 4, verse 13. He says this, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may receive with exaltation if you are reviled for the name of Christ. We're talking about that Christian work, that Christian obedience that accompanies the sufferings that will happen for any person who is a worker of Christ. You are blessed because of the spirit, he continues on, of the glory of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glory in God in this name. That brings us to a very important point that if you're involved in self-afflicted suffering, it may be because you're not a joiner or a sharer of the sufferings of the cross upon Christ. That you need to be exhorted. You need to be parakaleo, called to the cross first before you are called to the comfort that is abundant in Christ. Because outside of divine comfort, there is no comfort for the man who stands at enmity with God. There needs to be a quick reaction, a quick prayer to the Lord that you go with a sense of urgency that you leave here today as a result of the divine dose upon here. The greatest cluster of comfort needs to bring you to the greatest comfort that is found at the cross before any of the other work is bestowed upon you. You'll never be accompanied with Christ's comfort if you're not accompanied with Christ's salvation. Well, we understand that it's abundant through Christ here as a result of verse 5. It is abundant through Christ. And we see the concept that the embers of comfort are kindled beyond the sufferings of the cross to the Christian and into future generations of the church, spurring on a wildfire of divine comfort. We see that continued in his theme as we move to the third point in verses 6 through 11. The divine comfort is continued through the prayers of the church. Through the prayers of the church. We look at verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. You'd think maybe that that but would be one of contrast, but it's really one of a correlation. A correlation. And what's the correlation between divine comfort and between the prayers of the church? And it's this. For your comfort and salvation, that you let it have its effect and patiently endure. We see here that we're not to be caused to be put under trouble. We are afflicted for a purpose. It has a positive connotation in the theology of comfort of Paul. 
When viewed rightly, afflictions are positive, not to be ashamed of, but rather to boast in. That's the exact opposite message in the context of the city of Corinth that was in the culture of Rome. We have been preserved from the wrath to come, being given entrance to heaven, and our affliction is to teach us that salvation is all we need to persevere. But what prevents us from possibly seeing this positive? What might that be for you and I? Well, as we were reminded yesterday in Tom Galdet's testimony at the men's breakfast, what we can be distracted from is by comparing ourselves to one another. When we take our eyes upon the personal relationship that we have with Christ, what he's called us to persevere in presently in our circumstances and look at somebody else's relationship with Christ. In different circumstances, we start to compare. But as Christians in suffering, we don't compare ourselves, we comfort ourselves. We are not to be complainers of suffering, rather to be comforted in our suffering. This theme comes up in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, just after it talks about peace of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. He says here, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. You know, Paul knew that there was a subjunctive clause here. There's a possibility of not being comforted, but if we're comforted, possibly we would logically have the comfort to bring it to others in the church. That's the effect it can have. Are we letting it have its effect as he continues on here in verse 6, which is effective in the patient enduring of the sufferings? Are you letting God's trials, afflictions, sufferings deal patiently in your life, go to work in your life? This word here is really a word that comes from energy and synergy. And it's that idea or sorry, uh, it comes from the word hypomeno, to remain under, to abide under. It's the word that Christ used when he said he will abide forever after he leaves this earth. It's the word that John used in 1 John to say that you would abide in the church and that will bring assurance to you. No one can bring assurance outside of your assurance with the Holy Spirit. But Paul continues this theme and idea in James 1, verses 2 through 3, that you consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We know that patience is often mentioned alongside of encouragement. That we need to be comforted because we need to let it have its work happen in our lives. Faith works is in effect when we put our energy into patient endurance to the end of salvation and arrive in glorification. We understand this continues on that we see in 1 Thessalonians 1-3 through constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Well, verse 7 builds on this theme with this idea of hope for you and is firmly grounded. Paul had hope for the church of Corinth. I believe he had hope for Santan Bible Church as well as we abundantly continue on sharing from the church then in this church now and to one another. Our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that you are sharers of our suffering so you're also sharers of our comfort. Paul's hope for, our church, for the church of Corinth will not be disappointed. It will be fixed, firmly grounded. Firmly grounded is used elsewhere in Romans 4.16 as an idea of a guarantor, a guarantee a lease that is guaranteed in contract. And he says this, knowing that you'll be sharers of our suffering. Companions, partners, sharers. You know, suffering and comfort are not mutually exclusive. They are rather mutually beneficial in the church. Are we letting the mutual benefit of one another's sufferings come upon us and work in our lives to ground us? That was Paul's hope for the church of Corinth. It should be the hope of us for our church as well. John Calvin said this, The riches of the Spirit are not to be kept by us to ourselves, but everyone must communicate to others what he has received. 
In fact, if we allow 1 Corinthians 12, 26 to have its work in our lives, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it, are we suffering with one another? Are we laboring with one another? Because if we're not, then we're conceding to the fact that being alone is without corporate comfort. Being alone is being isolated, and being alone is not understanding appropriately how to apply the dose of divine comfort we see here. Well, in verse 8 through 10, he continues on with this idea that comfort is to be corporate. And I'm thankful for seeing so many of you here in the church and that I saw so many of you at the 15th anniversary that I will see some of you tonight at Crossroads and on Wednesday morning Bible study and in Bible hour because and in fellowship group because you're allowing comfort to be corporate. Make sure that you're not being isolated in your comfort because then God's divine plan is not necessarily having its intentionality in your life. His highest dose of comfort begins at the cross and it continues in the church and he knows that it's going to come for you and I. As he says here in verses 8 through 10, affliction is coming. So comfort and trust hopes in God for life and death, not ourselves. We continue on in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. He was burdened. He was weighed down. He was heavy. He needed the yoke of Christ to come upon him. And it's interesting, the yoke of another believer was who Christ sent. He sent Titus. Titus shared of a letter that he had written to the church of Corinth. We find that out later on in this book. And Titus knew that he was able to bring to Paul a empathy that the church of Corinth, there was still a remnant of empathy for Paul in his affliction. Sometimes God sends a Titus, he sends a son of encouragement, Barnabas. Who has he sent in your life? And are you accessible to them? And are you allowing your comfort from divine intentionality being accessible to others as well? We do understand here that he wants us to draw upon Christ and then draw upon one another because sometimes it gets so heavy that we have no other way out. We see that's what he means here, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He had a death sentence upon him. He didn't actually get to prison yet, but it was as if he uses language here that the judgment from the judge has already been set in motion. That he has now had the javel hit. And he feels that weight coming upon him. And he knows that he can't bail out even when there's no road out. He's at loss, but he's not lost. For you and I, we can't be acting as though we're lost when we're at loss in situation and circumstance. Because we're not lost if we've been found upon the cross. Our despair is never Something we lose hope in Christ to save us. So who is strengthening you? And ultimately, if it is at the end, know that you have strength in the cross. As you're here at this church, it is continued through your Christian fellowship, though. He actually tells the Corinthians in that passage that we went over earlier in uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, that they were not allowing themselves to have the affections that would allow it to be shared upon one another, restrained in your own affections. They didn't have that religious affection. And what's interesting is, if you bail out, where do you often go? What's the very next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about having a self-consumed affection? Being bound with unbelievers. We often use that for marriage, but really what that found is fellowship. He says in the very next verse, bound with unbelievers for what partnership in chapter 6, verse 12, or verse 14 of 2 Corinthians, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? When you're in affliction, the road out isn't join somebody who doesn't share in the sufferings of the cross. Don't get married to a non-believer, yes, but don't even start 
conforming your fellowship and your patterns of hobbies and your centrality of time with non-believers. Because that's bailing out. That's not taking the dose of divine comfort that Paul had as planned. Your dose of divine comfort is found in the shared fellowship of sufferings in the church. So that needs to be what we see here. Paul was at loss, but he was not lost. He was discouraged, yet he had hope. Continue on with me as he sees here in verse 9. He understands that the cross becomes personal when we are confronted with Christ. That we go from death to life, and now we go from trial to hope. We see that we don't trust in ourselves as a result of that hope. Indeed, he continues on in verse 9, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's where his hope was in the church of Corinth, to trust and boast in Christ, even when the culture was saying otherwise. His sentence of death was upon him. His trust was perfect. This is in the perfect tense, the word trust here. It's whole, it's complete. He doesn't necessarily convey the idea of time. He conveys the idea that the cross considers nothing except the whole comfort and trust you can have in Christ in any affliction. When all options are exhausted and there's no way out of the emotional, physical toll, the way forward is the way, the truth, and the life who moved you originally from death to life and will move you now from trial to hope. That is what we need to understand His state of affairs were getting tricky, but he knew in verse 10 the deliverance from death is a continual process, a continual promise. He says, who delivered us from a great peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. The past, the present, and the future reality of deliverance is Christ's work. We allow that to continue upon us. This is a passive action of ours that we know we receive the past, present, and future deliverance of Christ. We let it do its work in us by patiently enduring. That's where we find our whole hope. In verse 11, as we continue on, what I was mentioning earlier, but was really for this verse here, you also enjoining in helping us through your prayers. This is the word that is synergistic. Sin porgale. The idea that it's synergistic and it's effort together. We are synergistic in our work of joining together. Joining and helping, this is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It's a present, active participle. That our joining together in prayer continually, habitually, and will always happen until we see our day of of glory. Are you continually allowing the prayers of one another to join in your suffering? The cards that you receive of encouragement, of parakletes, the cards there with the scripture readings bring you to the mind of the believer who wrote that to you. As if you're joining in prayer in that very moment with the scripture reading of the same heart, you're joining in a synergistic work of God's divine plan for your comfort so that you would know how to respond in thanks. If you're not continually joining in prayer, you're not cooperating in God's divine plan of comfort. Through your prayers, he says here in verse 11, through the prayers of many, he continues on, it's abundant prayer life for the one who has a dose of divine comfort. Paul knew the possibility of glorifying God in thanksgiving because of the blessing of his safety as a result of the intercession of the church. Intercession of the church is important in your life. You can't be without the church, because comfort is not monergistic, it is synergistic. Let the synergistic work happen within you. Well, as we conclude our time here, I want to share an illustration that conveys this so richly and so deeply, and I have the permission of Gail and Tom Gaudet to share this, and it was from yesterday that was so deeply moving and so much telling of what's going on in their life and their affliction that God has given them. And we understand that Gail spent a long time, months, in the hospital. And as a result of that, she left that and went into a group home. And as she went there, the doctors came in to assess her cognitive ability. Well, Tom was a little afraid because he didn't 
think she was going to do that great. And they had her start off with a few tests. The first test was had shapes on a page, and there were similar shapes on that page. And she had to go and circle the same shapes and match them. Well, she failed miserably. And then she was to see a page of animals and to circle the same animals and match the same animals, and she failed miserably. And then it was the story of the clock. She was to draw a clock starting at 12 o'clock and going all the way around, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and where she was at cognitively, she drew a 1 where the 12 was, and then she drew a 2 where the 3 was, and a 3 where the 2 is until she got to 25 o'clock, 26 o'clock, 27 o'clock, 28 o'clock. And then she turned from the cognitive, or the doctor turned from the cognitive to the spiritual and the emotional. She asked, where were you born? Detroit, Michigan. She got it right. She asked, how many children do you have? She said six. She got it right. She asked, who is the oldest? Alicia. She got it right. She asked, why are you here? To glorify God. And in that moment, Gail knew the purpose and intention for divine comfort. It had passed on from her to Tom in comforting him. And now today it passes on from Tom to you and I so that we can respond rightly by giving glory to God in all of our afflictions. Let us pray. Dear God, we bestow upon you a blessing, the favor that we join in prayer together in all that you bring us through for your glory and not for ours, so that we may boast in you and not in ourselves. Let the context of Corinth reach to the application of us in being those who have divine comfort in abundance from Christ and share in that divine comfort in the abundance of prayers in the church. In your name, amen.